Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. As always, Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss how to prepare for, navigate, and integrate a psychedelic experience. We've addressed these topics in isolation on other episodes, but we thought it might be helpful to record one big standalone resource for those seeking healing, transformation, and or exploration using psychedelic tools, or for those of you that help facilitate such experiences for such seekers. I mentioned our numinous psychedelic therapy training courses at the top of the show, so if you want to go in-depth on the concepts and skills relevant to psychedelic-assisted therapy, click on the link in the show notes, or go directly to numinous.com forward slash training. You can use the code PTF10 for 10% off selected trainings. You hear Reed and I talk a lot about the psychedelic clinical trial work that Numinous does on the show. If you or someone you know is interested in being a participant in a psychedelic clinical trial, you can click on the link in the show notes or go directly to numinous.com forward slash research to learn more about the trials we're currently running. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review or a rating in places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're watching on YouTube, you can like the video, subscribe to the channel, and share it with somebody you think might benefit from this resource. Without further ado, here's our episode on prep, navigation, and integration. Welcome back to another episode of Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. How you doing, Reed? Very well. Thanks, Steve. Good. How are you? How's your heart today? It is good. My heart space is open. I'm ready to talk about some psychedelic preparation, navigation, and integration. We thought it might be fun to um, provide sort of a standalone resource on those topics. Of course, we talk about them all the time. We've had older episodes on each one, but thought it might be useful for you folks. Yeah, because we get that question a lot, of course. How does one prepare for a psychedelic experience or their first mm -hmm. or their hundredth? How do you prepare? What are some tools, skills for navigating? And then what do you do with that? Yeah. What do you do with that? So I, I should say that we, uh, that Numinous has several courses on these topics, psychedelic harm reduction and integration, our introduction to psychedelics class. And then of course the fundamentals of psychedelic assisted therapy, which is more for practitioners, but just pointing people to other resources mm -hmm. before we dive into it. Yeah, those are good. Well, uh, do you want a poem to begin? I always want a poem. <laughs> it's, it's about this idea that we talk about a lot, uh, that you've got to feel it to heal it. That's what it's called, in fact. Mm. But the idea that the only way out is through. Sometimes you might even feel better. I mean, worse <laughs> before you feel better. Mm -hmm. But this is a, a little passage by a gal named Dina Strada. Uh, you've got to feel it to heal it, why we have to stop numbing the pain. And she says, I've spent much of my life r resisting my true feelings. Anger made me feel wrong. Sadness made me feel weak. Needy made me feel girly. Love made me feel scared. I became an expert at hiding when I was, f when I was feeling any of the above. Some people numb their feelings with alcohol, drugs, shopping, or sex. I numb with control, being in control, exerting control, maintaining iron will control over my every emotion. Don't think I have anyone fooled. Besides, this only works for so long before the emotions leak out and erupt like a dormant volcano. 
One of the most famous quotes of every 12-step program is, you got to feel it to heal it. As someone who absolutely hates feeling anything that makes me vulnerable, this is the best advice I've ever received. Because I've felt no greater pain and sadness than I have the past two years of my life, yet it's been the catalyst for my greatest transformation. Every crazy, unhealthy, not like us thing we do in life has a catalyst, something that triggers the event that lands us in the place we never thought we could ever be. It could be the death of a loved one, the memory of some childhood trauma, the meeting of another soul who holds up a mirror to us and forces us to see what we don't want to see. And we're here because we can't face the real pain that lies beneath it. So we look for ways to escape it. But the only way out is in, into the feelings, into the pain, into the hurt, into the loneliness. There is no other way. Believe me, I've tried. I've tried every other way around it, and I'm here to tell you there is none. you got to feel it all to heal it, pass through it, and get to the other side. Mm. What funny creatures we human beings are that uh, <laughs> the, we actively resist the thing that, is, that will unlock healing for us. It's so relatable what she's talking about Mm -hmm. it is it's an age-old thing like what was it uh in the bible era all you have to do is look to that staff to live Mm. with the the snake that has become a symbol of of modern medicine but uh many people wouldn't Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so very a great poem to lead into what we're talking about because so much of the psychedelic experience is an invitation to feel the things we've been avoiding. Um, and it, I say invitation uh, because that's a gentle word, but sometimes the psychedelic experience is less of an invitation and more of a grab you by the scruff of your neck and, and put your face in it. An imperative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like she said in there, sometimes we just find ourselves somewhere where we never thought we'd be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have a mirror held up to us and we're like, oh shit, that's a lot of work I have to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It does speak to the importance of preparation. If you're going to go to psychedelic assisted therapy or a psychedelic ceremony of some kind, that the more familiar you are with the potential triggers, with the, the things that you avoid, um, and the more resourced you can be in confronting and approaching those things, then perhaps um, the more access you'll have to them, or at least the more facility and skill you'll have to navigate them when they show up. Yeah, and it's interesting to look at uh, how this whole field has evolved, not just in recent years, but thinking back to the original Renaissance, if you will, like the the 60s and before that, there's this case that I've probably talked about on here, but I, I use it in a lot of the eating disorder psychedelic talks I give. Uh, it's a case report from like the 1940s in France, the first hospital-based psychedelic study that I've been able to find. Um, and it, it came to be because there were some friends of like Albert Hoffman and he was in uh, Switzerland, but nearby in, in Paris in this hospital, they got some mushrooms, some psilocybin and gave it to a bunch of patients, including some with eating disorders, but all comers. And it was just uh, a hospital-based study. They were paraded around to psychologists to get some tests done, some interrogating questions, if you will, some um, personality, cognitive testing, whatever. And uh, it was quite uncomfortable, the experience for them. The dose wasn't uh, really figured out yet. And if you look at the rate of like 
dysphoric um, experiences or even negative experiences during. It speaks to the concept of set and setting that didn't really come to be until the early 60s. Hmm. Um, I think it was it was uh, the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. What was his name? Al Hubbard. Hubbard yeah. Not to be confused with L. Ron Hubbard. Um, <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Al Hubbard um, visited uh, the mushroom ceremonies in Mexico and observed this concept of set and setting. I think he, he deserves a lot of the credit, and then Tim Leary made it more popular. But, but there was even this concept of the Hubbard room that uh, said the room was to be more like a home than a hospital. Mm. And because... Uh, pre-1960s, um, if you looked at psychedelic studies that weren't well controlled back then, so you take it all with a grain of salt, but the rate of uh, negative experiences uh, was a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that was uh, one thing that led to Tim Leary really pushing this is he heard about this DMT research going on before he'd even tried it, um, where one researcher said like over... 90% of people in this in this big cohort he was working with, um, a non-controlled study, had some negative experiences. And uh, so he was testing this theory that if you pay attention to the set and setting, you can really influence that. And, and then he wrote, he wrote it up in, I think, 1966. Um, interesting title, if you want to look it up, Programmed Communication during experiences with DMT, hmm. but uh, talks about what happened when they give it, gave it to like very experienced monk and when he took it and, and others. But um, but point is, long story short, set and setting matter. And I'd, I'd sum it up by saying that four big factors I like to look at in preparation of what's the drug being taken, what's the dose, because that matters. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what are we doing about set and setting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the things we ought to do then about set and setting? Maybe we could start with mindset. Um, What are some of the things we can do in preparation to uh, optimize, if if I dare use such a word, the mindset? Well, to use a couple examples, we often uh, get asked questions of, should someone turn to a psychedelic medicine, including ketamine, for example, or psilocybin for XYZ. And if someone is coming with like an acute, you know, very recent loss with acute intense grief, that may not be the right time, mm-hmm. right? Or I remember uh, being uh, doing some harm reduction uh, trip sitting, if you will, many years ago for uh, with uh, this group of people that was taking a psychedelic medicine and one person had just lost their job, lost their relationship and drove all night to be in this circle of people. Mm. And, uh, you know, in spite of, uh, some advice to the contrary, ended up taking the medicine and, and sure enough, her experience was amplified as just that just intense, um, kind of emotional pain around what had just happened. Um, and so what to do about it is, uh, um, you know, taking the time to prepare and, and picking the time wisely too, Mm -hmm. where you have, uh, you know, you can 
control what you can around those other variables, not just what might show up that day, but what's going on in your life is worth taking an inventory on and, and planning when you have the time and space to work on it and the resources. Yeah, it's important to be thoughtful about it because, of course, people often turn to psychedelic tools because things aren't going well, right? It's not that everything is stable, and that's why they want to go into a psychedelic experience. But what you're describing, maybe you could think of it as um, a launch pad, right? If you're going to launch into the stratosphere and into outer space, you want to have a pretty firm, secure launch pad. That doesn't mean everything has to be going according to plan in life and that you're feeling totally stable, but you use the word resource, and that can be a good way of thinking about mindset and to some extent setting as you're preparing for a psychedelic experience. What are some grounding, supporting resources, either internal resources like a certain breath work practice or meditative mm -hmm. practice or embodied somatic practice? Or let's say you have some uh, people in your mind that are a source of comfort and stability for you that you can call in. You know, just a few examples um, or an external resource. And this overlaps with the concept of setting, but uh, the, the people around you, you know, the people mm -hmm. that are guiding you or, or like you said, trip sitting you, or if you're in a group scenario, the people you're journeying with, these are all important resources to consider if you're, you know, coming to a psychedelic experience to help you manage some instability. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that preparation would be getting to know your facilitator or facilitators and mm -hmm. developing that sense of trust and safety because as Stan Groff so eloquently put it, these uh, medicines, psychedelics, are nonspecific amplifiers of mental and psychic processes, uh, suggesting that, you know, what's in your psyche, especially the stuff with highly charged emotion tied to it, uh, may very well likely will come to the surface. Mm -hmm. And that that's what uh, we're talking about when we say sometimes you do feel, you might feel for a moment more intensely worse or a little dysregulated before you feel better because stuff comes up, stuff to work on comes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which can make you feel very vulnerable. And allowing oneself to feel vulnerable can be a, a really important aspect of why the psychedelic experience is so healing. But that vulnerability needs to be held in a container of safety and trust, like you said. And when you do that, when it's held in a container of safety and trust, you can then achieve more intimacy, intimacy with yourself, intimacy, you know, by intimacy, I mean like connection, vulnerable connection with others. And then um, if that int intimacy pays off, right, if it's being met, as I said, with security and with, uh, with safety um, and ethical space holding, then you can start to heal some of those things, those parts of you that really were uncomfortable with vulnerability to begin with. Mm-hmm. It uh, makes me think of the most common advice we probably give or you hear about um, preparing and integrating is, uh, you know, seek professional help, have a therapist or, or coach or someone you're going to work with. But it's also the most commonly ignored advice because, you know, naturally as humans, we we get busy and there are limited resources, there's limited time, but I can't emphasize enough, like we've been saying already, you know, making the time and space and using this as a reason to do that work. Uh, and that can look like a number of different things, but, but and, and the journey starts when you sign on to the experience, as mm. people say. And I think it's, it's worth 
really uh, taking that to heart as you proceed and taking preparation seriously. And this isn't one session or one day. Mm-hmm. Like this is ideally weeks or months. Right. The preparation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And integration even longer. Mm-hmm. So paying special attention to, you know, the facilitator and um, things you mentioned. Uh, in preparation, we also talk a lot about setting an intention. So you could think about preparing your mind. You could think about preparing your body, preparing your soul, preparing your life, you know, the surrounding context, trying to get things off of your plate so that are not on your plate as you go into a medicine experience. But, you know, we, we talk a lot about intention setting. Uh, and so I guess I'll keep, maybe I'll just keep interviewing you, Reed. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, how does one set an intention? Well, at least what might one want to consider when setting an intention? Yeah, I like... Uh... I like the the why of intention setting just to visit that for a moment like why do we why do we care it does um it does really set a vector of transformation for your for your journey for your preparation journey and integration experience and and it's a way to empower you in that direction individualize the the process the outcome to you and uh it's important to take it seriously, like spend some time tuning into it. I like to look at an intention as, uh, like sometimes I'll use uh, the closest Sanskrit word I've been able to find, sankalpa, which you could translate as a seed or a bridge, but but the san part of it means like to become one with, and the kalpa part of it could mean a couple things. It could mean time or it could mean the subconscious mind. Like mm. there's a lot of multiple meanings in, in Sanskrit, which is fun, but, but essentially Sankalpa becomes like a seed that, that you plant deep in your psyche that needs nourishment. Uh, essentially a vow that is birthed from the deepest core of your very being that you tune into and find. And then you use this intention and the experience to draw that from the unconscious into the conscious to make it manifest, to bring it into physical reality. It's, it's really a neat way to work on this manifestation of a, of a worthy ideal mm. um, with uh, intention. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and you, you've heard psychedelics call, uh, be called nonspecific amplifiers, right? So if, if we get to have a little bit of choice there, we want it to amplify something that serves us. Yeah. It's informed by the reason we are seeking this tool to begin with. So paying special mm-hmm. attention to the why is really, really important. And and we can talk about some formulas to get to an intention, but I like to even before that uh, till the soil a bit with some some questions of like, what are you seeking to transform? Mm-hmm. Or how can you support your process of whatever it is for you, grieving or forgiving self or other or whatever it may be, or um, what is the most loving thing you can do for yourself and your journey? Mm. And just looking first at those big picture questions to orient you to the this uh, kind of broader category of work and then getting into a specific intention and uh, taking it all the way to... Um, tuning in, 
working on it till it feels right and uh, sitting with it in your preparation, writing it down, making it real, sharing it with others. And then you're really ready to take that into the experience. I love that. Maybe we should see if, how long we can draw out the uh, gardening metaphor. Cause I love the mm-hmm. idea of a seed that you said with an intention, but tilling the soil first, preparing the soil with these questions with, you know, self inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. And the soil has a lot of set and setting components to take care of the conditions for optimal growth, mm. removing the obstacles or the impediments that might get in the way. Yeah, you wouldn't want to plant a seed in a bunch of gravel or some <laughs> non-nutritive sand. You want to make sure if you're going to go to the trouble of planting the seed that it's in nutritious soil. Yeah, because we humans, like plants, uh, know what to do to heal and grow if the conditions are right. Mm. And But uh, the work um, that we do as you know, therapists, facilitators, whatever you want to call it, is to helping to, to identify and, and get rid of those obstacles in the way so the person can let their inner healer shine, shine through and do the work. Because just like yeah. we, we uh, know how to heal when we get a cut or a scrape or an injury, um, you know, our psyche, our soul also knows what to do if we let it. Yeah. And, you know, um, to call back to the poem, um, up, the things she said about control, uh, we also don't force plants to grow, right? We, mm-hmm. we set the conditions and then we support that natural mechanism, um, that knows how to grow. And we can talk more about what support looks like, maybe an in integration, but hurry up. Yeah. And with the injury part, you know, sometimes, yeah, we get cut and we don't have to will the skin to knit itself together, but we might put a bandage on it. Right. We might apply an ointment to support healing. If we injure a joint, we might go to physical therapy. Mm-hmm. So there are things we can do to support the natural healing process too. Maybe I should show my current injury as an example <laughs> for the few who might be watching this on YouTube. The YouTube version. Um, but uh, if you look at my arm, I have a good shiner right here. Oh, man. Um, so this was uh, uh, a little bicep tear mm-hmm. I got. But it's, it's interesting to look at the process. Um, so I initially got this tear from doing some shenanigans. I was doing flag pose without any warm-up. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar, Google it. It's a fun little, fun little maneuver. But uh, I just went too hard, too fast. At first I was like, oh, wow, I'm good at this. But then pop, oh. I felt something. Um, and uh, there was instant swelling. Wasn't sure what to expect, but... The body seemed to be taking care of it on its own. But what uh, I wasn't doing, in hindsight, perhaps um, appropriately, was giving it enough rest and downtime because, you know, a few days later, I must have torn it a little more Mm -hmm. while taking garbages out in snow and yanking on them with this injured arm, one in one arm, one in the other. And... uh, and then within hours, it was ballooning up and bruising mm-hmm. and turned uh, black and blue by the next day. And, um, and uh, yeah, so, so here I am, but looking at it day after day, it, you know, I don't know if it looks better, but it, it feels better. It's clearly healing itself. I'm back in the, in the, on the yoga mat, and every day that I do that, I find myself adding another thing or two where like, I mean, there might be 
one or two little limitations um, a week later that that I feel. I mean, every injury is a little different, but mm-hmm. but the patience, the time and space, the the balance of rest and active intentional work is important. Man, that there's a preparation integration metaphor for you. So <laughs> you didn't warm up properly before engaging in this activity. And so the muscle was stretched. You can think of if we don't pay attention to preparation the way that we've described and you go into this psychedelic experience where your psyche is stretched, it can snap. <laughs> it can bam. It can pop. And then, you know, um, maybe you uh, tried to do too much afterward and didn't give the the injury the care it deserved. And um sounds like it made Overwhelmed. the injury, yeah, made the injury worse. So you think about integration, we'll get to that in more detail later, but it requires careful attention. Yeah. Yeah. And patience is key. Mm. Like I, um, I have to remind myself that all the time, but I think healing, um, our, especially our psyche and growth, uh, takes time. It's like healing from an injury, going to physical therapy. That's not done overnight, right? Mm-hmm. It, it takes a lot of time. Yeah, because the, the body has to adapt to a new stimulus. And so you could think of the psychedelic therapy transformation process similarly. You've got all these possibly new insights, new stimuli, new things to make sense of, make meaning out of. And it takes time for the mind to adjust, especially if you've had like a really, really blast-off type experience or something that is very different from your normal state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't tend to it, then that seed isn't going to grow. We're mixing metaphors now, but <laughs> I think it works. So many metaphors. But on the intention front, um, a formula that we'll often use with clients um, to get specific when the time's right after really doing that uh, kind of scan of your inner world and your process and work is um, first choosing, say, a verb, like help me with, teach me about, show me blank. And then you can combine that with um, the next part of it, which could be a difficult emotion, like help me with my anger, teach me about my anger or grief, Um, or an essential quality, like... um, Help me with compassion, mm-hmm. connection. Um, an essential quality could be peace, love, something you're looking to bring more of into your life. Um, these qualities that we might have been disconnected from, understandably, through especially painful life experiences. So uh, a, a few examples would be show me my fear or teach me about love. Um, help me understand my anger, help me experience joy, mm-hmm. help me see what's in the way of, of joy and contentment. Yeah. And so once you've landed on a specific intention, it can be helpful to journal about it. It can be helpful to meditate on it. And the intention might uh, evolve. It might change and that's okay. Sometimes I describe intentions as a loosely held hope. We want to make a distinction between intentions and expectations back to our discussion about control. So if we go in saying, you know, teach me about love and the medicine has a different experience on the menu for us. I'm like, no, I thought it was supposed to teach me about love. Mm -hmm. Then uh, that represents resistance and that can lead to a a so-called bad trip. Yeah. We got to give that very important disclaimer of letting go. Mm -hmm. You set your intention, meaning plant a seed, 
but uh, be prepared for, um, you know, any other possibility. You know, the fact of the matter is we don't really have a, a crystal ball and don't really know what we need in advance uh, until the journey starts to unfold. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like to think, you know, let's say I'm, I'm, uh, I want to get to the top of a mountain and I've got my eye set on the peak, but the path might be winding. It might be circuitous. So it also yeah. might in, instead be better to say, I'm going to go hiking rather than I'm going to get to the top of that mountain. And so we allow for the journey to unfold. Yeah. And that can be a fine intention too. We've, you know, we're talking about setting a, a specific intentions, but a, a perfectly fine intention could be, you know, I, I want to experience this medicine. Yeah. Uh, I want to see what it has for me. Or I want to surrender, mm-hmm. let go, go with the flow. Be open, that, stay curious. Yeah, that was, um, I think, my first ayahuasca intention landed on a simple one word, surrender. Mm. And uh, for those of us that uh, try to control things, which is every human in, in our own ways, mm-hmm. uh, it can be extremely important, especially early on, like that's my favorite intention for the early psychedelic experiences, especially if someone doesn't uh, come in with a, a clear cut part of their their work that, uh, you know, shows up as a, as a really solid, useful intention. Yeah. And then one thing you might also surrender is your expectations about what surrender might look like when mm-hmm. combined with psychedelic, because it could be like, you know, this sort of gentle, here's what surrender feels like. Or it also could be, let's test you on surrender. And we're going to do some things that are difficult to surrender to. So hard to predict. Yeah. And, and I would say that the ability to surrender, the ability to let go and go with the flow, expand and contract and, and flow with an experience that is unknown beforehand. That's one of the best predictors of, of having a positive experience, the ability to do that. And, you know, what we resist persists, what we resist blows up, becomes difficult. And uh, we've both seen time and time again, when people are fighting the medicine, that's when you're you're really kind of amplifying the resistance in a way that, uh, you know, prevents you from getting to those deeper layers. And yeah. that may be your work, and that's, that is uh, some of the most important work. But the, the sooner we can get to that prerequisite skill of letting go and going with the flow, uh, the sooner we can get on to the, the other parts of the transformative journey. Yeah. It can be helpful in preparation to experiment with ways to surrender, like ways to um, find equanimity and peace in the presence of discomfort. We've talked a lot about a few ways to do this on the show before, but you know, you could do breath work. You could do uh, certain meditations where it's mm-hmm. difficult to sit still for a long time. You could do hot yoga. You could do a cold plunge or a cold shower. Um, but it, it, if you flex that muscle enough, then it's going to be more available to you when you're in the medicine experience. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, in fact, that's a really practical tip is for someone who has never experienced an altered state of consciousness in a significant way, like on purpose, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's extremely useful to seek out something like that during the preparation phase, 
such as breath work, where you actually have control of your rate of breathing and the ability to titrate um, or even kind of abort mission in a way from the experience. You might have lobster claws uh, mm -hmm. from some respiratory alkalosis or whatever uh, that will take a little bit of time to subside. But but uh, breath work is a great way to dip a toe in that or to experience a big, uh, full-blown journey. Um, and if someone has access to it, uh, lower dose experiences, micro min, micro dosing mini dosing um getting ready for an experience it can be really helpful too yeah you can also be an opportunist here where just as life presents you with things that you'd normally brace against or resist or try to control see if you can relax into it you know i think about when my kids were young and they were getting immunizations they're getting shots and uh when <laughs> one of my kids when he was really young like these are baby shots he doesn't know what's coming at him and the the person that gave him the shot was particularly skilled at entertaining him when this was happening. And he, he didn't even flinch. But when he got old enough to sort of know what was going on and was anticipating the shot and bracing and really nervous, it just made it so much worse and even actually more sore. The post-injection pain was a lot <laughs> worse. Oh, yeah. So then we, I remember trying to coach one of my boys just like, you know, let's breathe, let's relax. It's all going to be over soon. And and, you know, to his credit, he just sort of took on this resilient mindset and, you know, got the shot, little tears, like, oh, dad, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> like, good job, good job, kiddo. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it helps to look at different areas of work to consider for intentions. Um, I think it was a, a couple years ago and more, uh, you and I with some colleagues were teaching a lot of the therapists we work with, some of the pillars of psychedelic work, and uh, one of them being mindfulness. Uh, you mentioned learning to meditate. I think important part of the preparation, do uh, have a meditation regimen, mm -hmm. whether it's an app. We've recommended the Waking Up app by Sam Harris. The intro course there is great, uh, but there's Headspace, there's Calm, there's Insight Timer, a million others. And uh, I really like The Presence Process mm -hmm. by Dan Brown. If you want more of a, a deeper dive or intenser course of experience, but doing something uh, to get used to, you know, sitting with yourself. Yeah. <laughs> because that's going to be an important part of the journey as well. That's who you're going to be with <laughs> during the journey. So it can be useful to get acquainted with self when other distractions aren't there. So kind of your standard, uh, whether it's, you know, TM, transcendental yeah. meditation or, you know, Vipassana or whatever, just getting, uh, you could use a, a mantra, you could use a focal point, but some kind of meditation practice consistently done can really prepare yeah. you well. Because that's what, it's really the secret sauce. That's what helps uh, you stay present for the experience longer rather than default into that immediate subconscious reaction of running away from things that are uncomfortable. So like it's, uh, it may begin with this sensing into, um, noticing, observing, but to staying with is a big part of it uh, and being giving us more of a stance of receptivity. Like, I think that's key for being able to draw from the experience because if you're not staying with, you're recoiling from, running from, resisting, fighting, and and that just is in the way of it. Yeah. yeah. 
And I, I do want to say that it, it, we're not necessarily saying that you just have to go out there and suffer. Um, mm-hmm. In in trauma work, we talk about this concept of pendulation and resourcing, meaning that uh, when you're trying to help your nervous system complete what was up until that point an incomplete trauma process, um, you know it can be very overwhelming to be in the presence of your own distress. So practicing going into that, and then when it becomes too overwhelming, coming out of that, back to a resource. And, you know, like we said, a resource can be a lot of things. It can be the image in your mind of a pet or actually your pet sitting on your lap, or it can be an image in your mind of a a happy place, or it can be a grounded breathing practice or a crystal in your hand. There's a lot of things you can use to resource. Yeah, for sure. So mindfulness is probably the the biggest area to draw those resources from Mm -hmm. and the biggest way to prepare and some people find some really solid intentions in that category and the next one being related would be emotions Mm. like we've talked about that a lot on here but just to summarize like emotions give us information of how to navigate life in a good way it's like your car's dashboard and we need to pay attention even though some of these signals that come from within these are evolutionarily wired um, bits of very useful information some of these signals are uncomfortable like a warning light um, uh, to keep you safe um, might be in the form of a negative emotion fear or anger uh, and then when you feel this in your body, you learn, you start to get to know what it's like for you. And then you know, oh, I'm feel, I'm experiencing fear and that's warning me of something or this anger I'm feeling uh, orients me to protect mm. from something or um, I'm feeling joy and contentment and love and I'm feeling seen and heard and all that stuff we wanna cultivate more of. but. Tuning into those uh, can go so far in our daily mental health and well-being. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been so often in our culture disconnected and at a big distance from those things that are there to help us navigate life in in a better way if we if we let them. Yeah, yeah. And when we stop ignoring that dashboard and try to get in contact with our emotions, we often discover that emotions are wave-like that uh, they get stuck when we resist them. But if we allow them to complete their natural process with curiosity and self-compassion, we discover that they will intensify and peak, but then they often, what is it, ebb or flow. There's a a crest that way, but there's a trough afterward. Yeah, and during a psychedelic experience, when you're firing on all cylinders, tuned in, uh, and things come to the surface more, it can be a great chance to explore and get to know your emotional system, how they show up for you, how you experience them, how they rise and fall. Mm -hmm. If you can surrender into that, that can go so far because, you know, we found, um, and the research keeps piling up on this, that like emotional dysregulation, emotional disconnection, especially, um, is at the root of so many mental health struggles, like the inability to uh, to let oneself feel, experience uh, the arc of an emotion. Yeah. In acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, it's called experiential avoidance. Yeah. And uh, it's theorized, like you said, to be at the root of a lot of what makes us suffer unnecessarily. Yeah, that's uh, a, a quote we've we've cited, not from ACT, but from Pascal, uh, French 
like, you know, polymath uh, from back in the day said, you know, all of our problems as humans stems from our inability to sit still in a room alone. Mm. Yeah. Go try that, by the way. <laughs> That's a good preparation exercise. That's, uh, you know, akin to meditation. Yeah. And you hear that from so many people because we dish out or prescribe meditation quite a bit. And uh, that's the the most common feedback is that sucked or yeah. that was hard. That was uncomfortable. Yeah. It didn't work. I'll hear that yeah. a lot. My they, mind's monkeying. I was supposed yeah. to be relaxing and I didn't do meditation right. Hey, that's a sign that you're on to something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, I mean, one of the most uh, uncomfortable things about my meditation practice now is, uh, boredom. You know, I have to confront that feeling as it comes up because I'm, you know, I'm, I've got a fairly active, ambitious mind and I want to get stuff done. I like checking things off and I'll be sitting there and doing my best to be present with myself. And if I manage to be in a fairly centered place and there's not a lot of content to sift through or to allow to pass through, sometimes I'll just be like, when is this over? And I'll <laughs> yeah. open my eye and look at the timer. And that's another interesting thing to be with, right? Your own yeah. boredom. Uh, that's a fun uh, meditation exercise to try is sitting in meditation until you no longer want to leave meditation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've heard Sam Harris say uh, that once you learn to do this, you'll never be bored again. Um, because the, the just tracking experience itself is infinitely interesting. Yeah. I haven't gotten there yet, Sam, but I, I trust you. <laughs> and it, it takes, it takes a long while too, and, um, takes consistent practice to keep it on board. It's easy to slip back even after years of a dedicated practice to slip back into old ways as well. Yeah. And I, a meditation teacher might say that meditation is not a thing to perfect, right? It's not, yeah. you're not doing it to get better at it necessarily, but, um, you know, at least in the context of preparation, like we're talking about, it is a useful tool to get familiar with so that you can bring that stance into the psychedelic experience. Yeah. And I guess related to the emotion category would be somatics or the body, Mm. the body as a a gateway to our inner worlds, how our emotions show up and, and uh, also our, our tool for experiencing the world. Right. You know, how we navigate life. And it's, it's essentially, you call it the royal road to the unconscious and, and increased awareness um, and connection to one's body uh, can be huge in uh, navigating life in, in a good way. Yeah, yeah, especially if you're particularly disembodied, which many of us are. Uh, by that, I mean just not in touch with the signals that your body are, is sending. We often say that emotions come with a bodily felt sense. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you feel anxious, where do you feel it in your body? What's it like? Does it have a color? Does it have a tone? Does it have a texture to it? A lot of my clients, when we, when I do this with them, um, let's say they're feeling anxious and they'll notice it in their throat or in their Mm -hmm. chest or in their abdomen. And it's a constriction or it's a buzzing or it's butterflies. Um, or if it's sadness, it's a full body heaviness, you know, the posture leans forward, the shoulders roll forward, the head angles down. If it's anger, it's a hot tension in the face and maybe the fists clench or the butt clenches or whatever. So these are generalities, but it would pay, uh, pay dividends to just look at how you experience emotions in the body. Yeah. Like as you're listing off some of those possibilities, I can't help but think about, oh, for me, I experience that lump in my throat, 
uh, as an early sign of like choking up some sadness mm-hmm. coming on or, um, and, uh, but in general, like, like you pointed out, these, uh, these patterns of body sensations tied to a given emotion, there are some common themes because with that bodily felt sense comes an action tendency or an orientation toward the world. It's really one of the neat, one of the zillion neat things about our human bodies and how we're designed. Whoever, whoever designed this thing <laughs> uh, is pretty clever um, not only self-healing, but but uh, has all these systems built in to help us navigate life. Like if you are sad and you learn to recognize that pit in your stomach, lump in your throat, maybe hunched over, curled up in a ball posture, that that orientation or action tendency is consistent with the need associated with it. You mm. you may need comfort, and and that's what it uh, helps you recognize and points you towards just like if you get that heated, energized, outward facing anger to protect, you're ready to protect uh, yourself, your loved ones, whatever's important to you. And that's part of the emotion and part of the somatics. Yeah. Well, as you talk about that, it made me think of like, what's a Reed Robison user manual? What's a Steve Thayer user manual? We're not given a how to pilot this meat puppet through the world user manual when we're born. And if you're going to jump into a new car or to an airplane, mm-hmm. you're going to want to know how to fly that thing. You're going to want to know how to pilot that thing. And so it pays off to really pay attention to the way the the messages, these feelings, these emotions, these sensations communicate to us what to do with them. What, what are those action tendencies? Hmm. Um, you know, are there primary, we've talked about, won't go all into this, but primary and secondary emotions, right? I'm feeling yeah. anger, but what's underneath the anger, that kind of thing. All that is to say, doing this work during preparation is really important because a lot of these things can be amplified or dredged up from the subconscious in a psychedelic experience. And the more familiar we are with navigating them, the better we'll be able to navigate them in the psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. I like that user manual concept. And we, we were talking about self-awareness, know thyself on a recent episode. And wouldn't it be cool if, if we actually drafted a user manual of ourselves yeah. um, for us perhaps, or even for your partner. Mm. Wouldn't that be useful to have some early warning signs of when someone's, uh, you know, um, anger or sadness or whatever disgust is mounting? (laughs) Yeah. I actually recommended that to a couple once, um, to write your own user manual to give to your partner or a field guide or, you know, break in case, uh, break glass in case of fire. (laughs) Yeah. Do these three things when I'm, when I, when I come across as a jerk, it's because I'm feeling this, I'm not going to be thinking straight. Please do this. Yeah, we do a lot of that in in therapy, even like a safety plan, for example, yeah. in the throes of a of a deep episode of depression, maybe with despair. Is um, what are the warning signs and what are the steps? A prioritized list of what you're going to do mm-hmm. when these signs come on board, like asking for help or phone a friend, whatever it may be. Um, and in fact, in a past company, when I was running a startup, this is, uh, several years ago, we had everyone write a user manual for yourself, at least for the work environment mm-hmm. of, of here's what you might need or want to know about me personally and working with me. And that was so useful. Just like, uh, 
you know, just people's, uh, people's triggers and inclinations or, um, you know, shyness that you might not have appreciated the depth of or something like that. Yeah. When I was in the military, we had a lot of standard operating procedures. You see these in companies too, SOPs, Mm -hmm. and they usually come out of FAQs to use more acronyms, frequently asked questions. So if you're frequently asking yourself the same question and you've contemplated it, maybe come up with something, an answer to that question or way to address that issue, start writing a user manual. Like, so that when that comes up again, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. And, uh, psychedelics can help you do that, Mm -hmm. right? Shine a light of, on that self-awareness. So before we move away from preparation, another thing I like to suggest to people is to go on an information diet. Um, meaning if you are accustomed to doom scrolling on TikTok or Instagram, your favorite news feed, um, you know, if you're watching a lot of scary movies or whatever, or if you're around people that perturb you, um, it might be helpful to allow your mind and your nervous system to relax a bit and spend more time in silence or spend more time doing out in nature, walking around in addition to all the other things we've said, but, uh, an inf- information diet is often yeah. indicated. Yeah. I like that. Cause when you're really focusing on the preparation work, you have to do just that, like clear the space for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the, the last category of intentions I like to look at would be the transpersonal, the spiritual, uh, sometimes we'll lump in parts work in that mm-hmm. because it can be part of that taking an inventory of these kind of unseen parts, the symphony of selves within yourself, um, the sub-personalities, wounded parts, etc. But the transpersonal, just looking at uh, your spiritual life, you know, what, uh, you know, what are your values, hopes, and dreams, and beliefs, and, and uh, you know, the insights that can come the, with the wisdom, I think, can all fall into that bucket um, and can address a lot of the existential angst and questioning that we find ourselves with as humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, purpose and meaning also I yeah. think about a lot when I'm considering the spiritual or the transpersonal category. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you find meaning? How do you, what, like, what do you drive purpose from, um, what do you feel like if this makes sense to you, what do you feel like you're called to do in this world and the many roles that you have, these can be helpful things to consider. Yeah. And, and these are kind of on a continuum or, a uh, a pyramid, a hierarchy, a spectrum, if you will, but the mindfulness skills is a very important, uh, prerequisite. And then the emotions, the body, uh, but really, um, like that, top of the pyramid stuff is what you were just talking about, the Mm -hmm. purpose and meaning and where we want to get to and why people have, have turned to these substances through the ages to commune with the divine or to explore the spiritual questions. Yeah. The layers of their psyche. All right. Do we feel ready to move on to navigation? Yeah, let's do it. We've alluded to a few things already. But, uh, you know, the psychedelic experience, it varies depending on the variables you mentioned earlier, certainly the mindset, the setting, but the, the medicine that you're using and the dose of that medicine. Um, but, uh, it can be helpful to get educated on what could be, what is typical, um, in the experience of a particular medicine. Cause they're not all the same. You know, we have this um, now umbrella term of psychedelic, 
under which we include a lot of different substances. And there are disagreements in the field on whether or not mm -hmm. these substances should be included. But if you think of the term psychedelic as um, sort of its roots as mind manifesting or psyche or soul manifesting, then yeah, a lot of things can help manifest what's down in there. So getting familiar with the medicine that you're taking on what the experience might be, might be like. Is it going to be dreamlike? Could it possibly be uh, ego dissolving, meaning your sense of self dissolves and you are one with the cosmos or with God or with the planet or all beings? Um, or is it more of a euphoria? Is it an intactogen that puts you in contact with inner self um, are you going to be feeling certain things in your body? Is there going to be nausea involved? So taking some of the guesswork out of it, but being careful not to assume that now you know what you're getting yourself into and that you, you can expect exactly what to happen. But I think it does make sense to at least familiarize yourself with what could be on the menu for you. Yeah, you know that uh, DMT paper by Leary that he wrote up in like Psychedelics Review 1966. I think the reason he needed to do that and the set and setting was really important coming to the conversation then is because uh, people didn't really look at DMT. Well, they were trying to look at it the same way as they did psilocybin, but it was so different. Like even, even uh, Alan Watts had a DMT experience and before then his goal was to, or or maybe other people's goal was to show that he can still be this brilliant orator and uh, mouthpiece during the experience. But no, D DMT, uh, depending on the dose, like we've been talking about, uh, is different, a compressed and more intense and more likely to be ego-dissolving experience. And, and uh, that's what happened for him and this uh, expert meditator monk who, uh, uh, you know, just felt completely confident in sitting through and even speaking through and narrating an experience, but but not when you get into that uh, high-dose blast-off, which speaks to, you know, what we're talking about, the need to really uh, approach this individually for you and for the medicine you're using and the dose. Dose and route of administration, right? I mean, ketamine in a lozenge slowly dissolved under the tongue can feel different than ketamine injected or via IV. DMT smoked or vaped or injected, it might feel different than DMT ingested with an MAOI like an ayahuasca. So yeah. it's another thing to consider. Yeah, yeah, and how long it's drawn out uh, is different for navigating the experience for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so paying attention to the drug itself, um, familiarizing yourself with what the experience might be like. What to expect and then let go and be open to that anything may occur. Mm -hmm. Like get, do your homework, but don't get caught up in it. Other little phrases I like just to add to the ones that you've given that can help navigate the experience are in and with. Uh, you mentioned trust, let go, be open. I like accept and allow. I mean, a lot of these speak to the same attitude, but just different ways to access it. All is welcome is another one. Mm -hmm. um, that it can be tough to have that attitude when what's showing up you really don't want. Back to our conversation about control and resistance, but all is welcome. Breathe and let go. I like that one because it reminds you of a resource. Uh, wherever yeah. you are, your breath is with you, so you can return to it. Your, yeah, the breath is the mind's remote control, if you will. And uh, it's important to remember, yeah, to take that in, um, especially when struggling. Like, 
when uh, caught up overthinking, overanalyzing, struggling, um, the breath can be a tool and the feelings can be a tool too. Mm-hmm. Like what am I feeling and where my body and lean into that. Yeah. Yeah. Another tool is your posture. So I remember being in an ayahuasca ceremony and the facilitators giving us some tips, some navigation tips. And that's one that he gave was, you know, if you're curled up in the fetal position and you're, <laughs> it's really, really distressing and you need something to change, you can just change your posture, sit up and breathe, mm-hmm. go into child's pose, lie on your back, um, yeah. move your body and it can shift the experience. Yeah. Uh, I got the same advice going into ayahuasca in the jungle. It was, uh, you know, there are a couple stances that are receptive and open Mm -hmm. like that laying on your back, you know, your palms might even be open. This shows up in the yoga room as well. Um, that matters the different postures and things you do with your hands, um, are taken really seriously of, of your receptivity. Um, and, uh, so if you're sitting up in meditation or laying down with a stance of openness, like like a shavasana, a nap time at the end of yoga class, is very different than if you're curled up in a ball, mm-hmm. like closed off or, and, and you may need child's pose. That may be a brilliant place to spend some time uh, to tune inward, but, but it's worth just looking at why am I embodying this stance? Because as, as we know and have described on here, uh, the body, the body's form gives rise to the mind's experience and, and narrative. And like if you were to hunch over and try and say a powerful stance, it comes out very different than if you mm-hmm. were to just take a moment and stand up tall, you know, lift your head up and imagine stepping into your superhero suit with a cape blowing in the wind and then say the same thing. It's, uh, it feels different. Try it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually did this with a client once in preparation. You know, this person, um, felt very small and unseen and, uh, anxious around others. So we practiced that imagery first and then practiced the actual pose. And then they had access to that pose in the medicine experience and helped them embody, you know, that was part of their intention as well, but embody this, this new, uh, uh, what did we call it? New, uh, aspirational self. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the mantra a lot, uh, and I've uh, used this countless times, mostly while navigating life, but sometimes in psychedelic experiences, is never do anything to make yourself or others, for that matter, small or mm. feel small. Mm. And uh, um, yeah, just taking that that stance, or even as you enter a room, like you might feel into where where am I going to feel the most comfortable, the most empowered for my journey? Um, you may or may not have too much control over it, but, but pay attention to it. Tune in, uh, ask for what you need. Yeah. So other navigation tools, um, you know, and when we say navigation tools, again, we're not saying like anytime it gets uncomfortable, change something. Uh, so this is in the spirit of, of sitting with and allowing all that stuff we mm-hmm. talked about, but um, you know, you can, uh, change to the extent that it's available to you, what you're focusing on. Yeah. This could be eyes open, actually looking at something different. That can be really weird <laughs> on psychedelics, uh-huh. of course, but it can at least shift the energy a little bit. Um, to the extent that you are at the helm, you can change what you're imagining, what you're thinking about. If in your psychedelic session, you're listening to music, you can change the track. 
or you can change your proximity to that music if it's coming from a speaker or if you've got headphones on, you can take the headphones off. If you've got eye shades on, you can take the eye shades off. These are all yeah. options. Yeah, and taking a kind of a, a patient and mindful and non-reactive approach to those of like with curiosity of, yeah. okay, this song is bugging the hell out of me. Um, instead of like subconsciously reaching for the skip button, looking mm. at that, like, oh, why, why is it bugging the hell out of me? <laughs> or, or you're having difficult time overthinking, struggling with something that you're thinking about seeing in your experience. Why is this in my mind? And that lean in with curiosity and remember you have those options too and right. ask for help or, uh, or take inspired action when it feels right. Yeah. So maybe curiosity first, right? Um, lean in first. Uh, you said, you said it quickly, but ask for help is another really, really important one. Yeah. You know, especially if help is available. We're talking about doing this with a therapist or a guide or a facilitator, but yeah, asking for help. And I remember in that same ayahuasca ceremony, that being another um, thing that the facilitator said is, um, you know, please ask for help if you need it. Here's a great word to use, help. Because, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, your words might not be entirely available to you, uh, but just help. Or you can do physical gestures. A lot of times when we're talking about um, preferences and boundaries around physical touch in a psychedelic therapy sessions, we'll talk about how this person wants to signal that they would like, you know, someone to hold their hand or someone to put their hand on their shoulder. And it can simply just be extending your hand and opening it. Yeah. And the, the shaman or facilitator in these ayahuasca ceremonies will often remind you to, that it's not your time to help others. Mm. And most of us do struggle with asking for help. And it's a chance to work on that. And also, I remember I was in, a, you know, an ayahuasca ceremony once upon a time with you, Steve, in mm -hmm. a in a far off land. And I think you were on the other side of the room. But but uh, there was uh, there were a couple of people next to me who were really filling up their puke buckets, <laughs> and uh, and one gal was asking for help. She was saying, "Help, help!" and wasn't being heard. Mm. And I was like, oh, I have a dilemma because I heard that and I want to help. Um, and then I heard her say like, puke bucket, because they'd filled it up. So what I did then is, you know, probably not what you're supposed to do mm. is I took my puke bucket that was empty and passed it over to her. And then I was without. And then after that, I was like, oh, um, Am I going to need that? Mm. Like I have, I have uh, some solid resistance built up towards throwing up that mm. uh, you've helped coach me through. Yeah. <laughs> it might have even been that same ceremony afterwards, yeah. sitting there and getting a a pep talk from Doctor Steve to go surrender to the toilet. <laughs> yeah, um, and but uh, that was an interesting lesson of uh, of you know. Of breaking the rule, the mm. the good advice that the shaman gave, and giving some of my bucket, and then just having to sit with that thinking mind of like, oh, um, what have I done, and what next? Yeah, yeah. Cool of you to share that, right? Because it's it, it provided you an opportunity to do your own work, and this is a, a, what would you know most times be a lovely uh, impulse to help others. Yeah. But at what expense?
There was another similar experience. I had traveled to another country with uh, the shaman medicine team from like South Central America and, uh, you know, a core group of, of therapist facilitators to work with, uh, um, work with a family that was really struggling. And I got to do at least a night or two through that, um, through that kind of intensive retreat of, of sitting with the medicine myself and, uh, and in the Shipibo lineage of ayahuasca, sometimes you get called up by the shaman who will chant uh, medicine, healing songs specific to you in this in this Shipibo language and uh, and chanting style. Mm-hmm. And so I get I get uh, called up to get worked on, and this this shaman who's awesome, he's just like layering these chants on me like a jackhammer, and. and when those when those hit you, it really for me anyway, and I've heard this from lots of others. It brings up the nausea, mm. like it brings it on. And I remember sitting there. I again, I left my bucket behind. Even though they tell you when you go up there, whether it's to get your dose of medicine or your other dose, or to get worked on, bring your bucket. I did not. I forgot. And uh, I thought about asking for help, but I did not. Mm. So I'm sitting there. Um, thinking, oh yeah, I get to get worked on, <laughs> and the chants are coming at me, and the nausea comes, and I—it's a different lump in my throat. I'm—I'm mm. I'm fighting it with all I've got, so I don't throw up. And then uh, the next morning, uh, we're having breakfast, and and sitting there with the shaman, and I'm like, man, I—it took all I had to not throw up when you were, when you were uh, chanting at me up there. And the, and he says, Reed, what the hell? <laughs> like, you don't get it. That's what I was, I was working on. You need to let that stuff happen. Mm. Yeah. Um, so another, another example of maybe what not to do. Trust the good advice from your facilitator. Yeah. Yeah. And ask for help. Yeah. yeah. So what else when you're, what else to do when you're struggling? Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of the good ones. Um, maybe remember your intention. Remember, yeah, return to your intention is really important. Um, you can have with you a totem or a reminder of that intention. So sometimes people will like to have something small they can hold in their hand that maybe they've rehearsed their intention to. Just sort of sort of programming the mind that like when I have this thing in my hand, I'm thinking about my intention. Remember in ceremony once somebody gave me a rock. I didn't bring my own rock. I'm not a rock guy, but mm-hmm. <laughs> or a crystal guy, but I held that rock the entire time, like all five or six hours of the ceremony. Um, sometimes I even forgot I had it in my hand, but when it occurred to me, I was like, oh yeah, not only did it remind me of my intention, because that's what I ended up doing with it, but it reminded me of this person. I like that. Who had gifted this to me. It was like, oh, I felt connected mm-hmm. to this person and their care yeah. for me. This is bringing a song to mind that I'm going to pull up. I'm looking at my phone which i know is is rude while we're uh while we're podcasting oh, dare but you. uh this is a song you may have heard called uh blessed we are by Paya. i don't know if i'm saying her name right but mm. like the voice of an angel she often has a harmonium and some some cool instruments with her backup band around her but um she it it reminds me to um, remember gratitude, mm. even for the difficult experiences when you're in it. Um, so I'm skipping 
in the song, but it says, Blessed we are to dance on this ground with the rhythm of saints to carry the sound. We hold a prayer for all life, for the days yet to come. May you walk in beauty and remember your song. Remember why you came here. This is what I wanted to revisit, uh, in part for me, because I was trying to remember these lyrics that have helped me at many times. Like, remember why you came here. Remember your life is sacred. Um, and uh, that's it. Mm. Um, remember your song. And blessed are we to dance on this ground. And uh, that goes a long way, just remembering why you came to this crazy, potentially difficult experience. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you brought up gratitude. Because um, I think of gratitude and, uh, you know, the positive psych research bears this out. But gratitude is one of those mind states, one of those emotions, one of those commitments and attitudes that acts as a solvent for a lot of what per perturbs and perplexes and disturbs yeah. us. And I remember being served a psychedelic medicine that comes on quick and the person serving it to me as they were serving it to me, just saying in my ear, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And that was what was with me as I blasted off to meet God mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, was thank you. And it just, it was like this yeah. vessel that, that I rode into the experience. It was beautiful. So returning to gratitude, I think is a, a yeah. serious pro tip. Yep. All right. So that's probably, probably good on the navigation front. Yeah, There's countless tips, but, uh, but we've still got integration to talk about mm -hmm. and time's whizzing by. Yeah. Arguably the most important, you know, I got it all important, but so that's why I said arguably, but what does integration mean? You know, it can mean a lot of different things. I like to say that to integrate is to leverage whatever we experienced in the medicine session for the greater good, for wholeness, for the kind of change that we want to embody in our lives. It certainly is connected to the intention often. So the activities we engage in and the integration process could be related to the intention. So if our intention is to experience more love, for example, or teach me how to love myself, then integration activities could be a self-compassion meditation or a meta self-loving kindness meditation. It could be engaging in self-loving practices like go getting a massage or uh, exercising or nourishing your body in a way that is, uh, you know, best for it. Um, being in nature, I could rattle off, you know, you could mm -hmm. Google what to do during intention and you'd find lists like this, but. Yeah. And from a big pic picture standpoint, I like to remember what integration means, like mm. returning to wholeness or mm. integrating those disparate, disconnected parts of oneself, if you will. Um, and uh, remember why we need to do it. Like there are a few ways of looking at it. Like a psychedelic experience is just an experience uh, if you don't integrate it. Sure, you may have lasting insights, but if you're not doing the work to weave that wisdom that you found into your daily life, it will very likely just snap back into place like a, a rubber band. We were talking about stretching ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you've got to really stretch repeatedly to be able to uh, use that in, in daily life or otherwise, yeah, just rubber band effects snapping back. Like, uh, like we've mentioned here before, uh, Jack Cornfield wrote a book called After Ecstasy, The Laundry. Uh, one of my favorite books, it's not written for psychedelic integration, but 
uh, very useful for my own integration, and I've mm-hmm. recommended it to others. But, but, uh, and I like this idea that if you're not doing the laundry afterwards, after this ecstatic bliss or terror, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. then the laundry is going to pile up, and soon you're just surrounded by a mess of laundry if right. you don't do your integration. Right. You know, another another idiom we used to quote all the time on this is before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Uh, people talk about psychedelics being 10 years of therapy in a day. It, it can give you the idea that this medicine will do the work for you. And I don't know that it does. You know, it, yeah. it can bring you to a place, but you don't set up shop there. You don't uh, create a home there. But as you exit that place, you can leave breadcrumbs. Um, and then the process of integration is a process of returning, following that path of breadcrumbs back over and over again so that you can then cultivate this way of being, these new insights, um, water that plant, trying to think of all the freaking metaphors that we <laughs> yeah. use today. Yeah, it's like uh, Paya said in that song, remember why you came here mm. and and why you came here likely has a lot to do with how you want to live your life because it's one thing to feel an outpouring of love and bliss during an ayahuasca ceremony uh in in that uh, peak moment Mm -hmm. but uh my question is does it change for the good how you show up in life and can you show up as a more loving human towards mm. self and others as a result of that and that boils down to the integration work right which is which is done out in the world where we chop and carry wood and where we interrelate with others and get our buttons pushed and everything else yeah each time a button is pushed is an opportunity to integrate an opportunity to practice what might have been new insights new skills um, yeah we would be remiss if we didn't at least briefly mention this concept of spiritual bypassing because you mentioned ecstasy, right? Um, a lot of times people will uh, chase the ecstatic mm-hmm. experience. They'll return to the Tony Robbins seminar or to the ayahuasca circle um, because they want to experience that the the you know ecstasis. They want to experience the transcendent again. Um, hoping that it will solve some problem they've encountered in the integration process. And sometimes that's the right move, but sometimes it might be more helpful to engage more deeply and more deliberately and with intention the integration process before you quickly return to the medicine. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. Um, And uh, maybe another integration analogy might be useful. It's like if you've ever backpacked around the world or done some extensive travel to a far off land, you know that like returning home can be a shock to your system, Mm. right? You may have experienced uh, this completely different perspective um, and have your mind blown and expanded. But when you get back, the people in your life and in your around you, work and home, um, may not have experienced that at all. And it can be jarring. Like they may just be living out regular lives in the default world like before, but the new you might feel that as very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's similar with a psychedelic experience. You've gone on this consciousness world tour, experienced eternity in a night and, uh, try, and then you come back to work and you're at the water cooler in the copy room making small talk about the same old uh, 
sports or news or politics or whatever. And, uh, and that can be, uh, disturb. It can feel mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. disturbing. What do you do with that? Do I fit in? Uh, how do I interrelate now? Yeah. yeah. It can feel really isolating, which is why I think, um, to the extent that you can, cultivating community mm-hmm. is a part of integration is really important. Community with people who, if not, if they don't know exactly what you've been through because they haven't used psychedelics, at least people who know how to hold space, who know how to listen without judgment. Um, so similar to the information diet beforehand, you know, in the integration process, you might want to have an interpersonal diet. Um, again, to yeah. the extent that it's available to you, but be be thoughtful about who you hang out with and. Also about what you share. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we come out of psychedelic experiences really excited to talk about what we experienced. And um, that could be an important part of integration to process and to share. But uh, as the saying goes, don't cast your pearls before swine. Um, just be, be careful about who you share with, people who aren't going to understand, who might judge you harshly or um, cause you to question you know, what you experienced. Yeah, if you don't have an integration circle or community or integration buddy, or therapist, uh, a therapist, uh, someone you can really open up to, and and uh, yeah, to carry on our seed analogy, you've got in your backpack from that consciousness world tour uh, in the jungle, you've got some seeds from your journey, and and now's the time to plant them and nourish them and care for them, and. Uh, and that may involve with your relationships, like you pointed out, it may or may not be possible to to uh, create time and space from from that or for too long. But mm-hmm. I've found it useful to think of these like unconscious contracts we have with other humans of how we have traditionally shown up, even if it's never been spoken. Um, and say you're working on how you show up or uh, taking some extra time for yourself. And and there may be resistance you meet, especially in your close relationships to that. And so naming it, uh, telling others, even if you're not, you know, casting all of your pearls, you can tell your mother, your father, your spouse, what you're working on and how. And I've found that that's uh, really received well for the mm. most part uh, outside of the psychedelic storytelling, just mm-hmm. like this is what I'm doing to try and become a better human. And, and I want you to know, and I want to, I want, I would like to uh, have your support and blessing. I like that. I like that. Um, another thing to consider is making big decisions immediately following a psychedelic experience. <laughs> yeah. right? Of course, you're likely going into this experience because you want to change some things. So of course you want to be, you want to be contemplating what you want to change and then use all the best habit change principles, um, to help support that healthy change. But I'm talking more like, you know, you, you come off the high of a psychedelic experience and you're like, Oh, I think I need to leave my spouse or I need to buy, you know, a new car or I need to quit my job. And maybe those are the things you need to do, but give it time, yeah. give it space, give it attention, patience, patience, discernment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, just keeping your integrity, your values, your your map, and front and center as you do this work too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other activities that can support integration: um, journaling, especially if you were journaling beforehand. Uh, continuing a journaling practice. We talked a lot about meditation and how important mm-hmm. that is. Continuing a meditation practice. 
Um, sometimes I like to say like all those things that your therapist or your doctor or your mom have <laughs> told you to do that cultivate wellness, those are some good things to do. Go on a walk. Yeah. Exercise. Eat your vegetables. Right. Yeah. Uh, I like to look at it just so I don't miss things or big categories of things. And again, they're, you can call them pillars if you will, but mm -hmm. these pillars of well-being that would be your, um, Connection to self, connection to community, nature, and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And under self, you've got the mental, the emotional, the physical, things we've been talking about. But really looking at all of those big categories and asking yourself, you know, uh, what's one thing you can do to support your integration over the next day or week in uh, any or all of these areas? Yeah. You like those different pillars. It helps you structure your integration focus mm -hmm. um, to be thinking about these different areas of life. Um, so that's super helpful. And I think we've covered a lot, Reed. Any other hot tips for integration? Another big one for me is uh, try and clients is trying to anticipate how might I get in my own way. Mm. Uh, just trying to see potential challenges um, from our past experiences or others or uh, from the therapy work we're doing and uh, seeing what might get in the way, how might I get in my own way, and how am I going to approach that if it comes up? Yeah. yeah. An example of that might be, you know, let's say you've, uh, the with the assistance of the psychedelic medicine, you, you allowed yourself to become very vulnerable and be very seen. Whereas you typically like to hide yourself, you might experience what we call a vulnerability hangover and the parts of you that were very relaxed during the mm -hmm. psychedelic come back with a vengeance. So yeah. if you notice that it's not necessarily because the, your psychedelic therapy experience didn't quote unquote work, it might've been because it worked really, really well. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, to allow this part of you to, to wrestle the steering wheel away from your, maybe your core self, um, might be an example of getting in your own way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good a good one. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just being really concrete, reflecting on really what it is you need to do to support your integration and writing it down, saying it out loud, using accountability uh, with your therapist, your partner, your your friend or community and remembering that patience we talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, like if we look at the, even the science, we've talked about habits before, but um, there was this one study over a decade ago. It, it showed that it took on average 66 days to create a new habit, but the range was like 20 to 250 right. or something like that. Um, and yeah, we are what we repeatedly do. And uh, while practice may not make perfect um, because perfections and illusion, mm -hmm. um, like repetitive work, uh, is, is where the magic meets the road in integration. Like yeah. even if it's, uh, like two minutes of meditation each day, uh, compared to 20 minutes every six months when you remember is night and day different. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Consistency is key. Um, for all you personal development maximalists out there, uh, we're not saying do everything we've said. <laughs> <laughs> so it yeah. might be helpful to pick one thing, especially if it's relevant to your intention 
and double down on that. Make that the consistent practice. So if it's meditating five minutes a day, it's more important that you're consistent with the one thing than if you sprinkle in a bunch of different stuff and you do them inconsistently. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, I think that's a, a good summary. Maybe a few questions that I find helpful as journal prompts um, to uh, use in my integration work is like, what struck you about the experience? Like, what are you struggling to make sense of? Mm. Um, what did you experience in your body, your emotions, taking an inventory? What wisdom could you draw from this experience? Um, and along those same lines, what, what significant lesson or insight do you want to hold on to? build a castle around inside of you that trail of breadcrumbs like you mentioned Mm -hmm. to remember and uh because you might have you might have uh pages of journal entries about uh crazy wild psychedelic experience but but what matters what are you going to weave into life and highlighting that putting that uh somewhere where you can revisit in the spirit of of uh repetition Mm -hmm. and consistency and doing the work. Um, and then, uh, yeah, how can you apply it into your life? Right. Super straightforward. And I might add a couple questions like, um, what am I trying not to feel, uh, or what change am I avoiding? Um, just to bring to the foreground, if there's any more resistance in there can be helpful to explore, but I really like your questions to help focus the integration work. Yeah, but it's, it's brave work. And, uh, I always like to bring in the Alan Watts saying about when you get the message, hang up the phone. Mm. And because I like that as a way of asking myself always before signing on to any psychedelic experience or ceremony, um, yeah, where am I at in my integration process? Why might I be putting something like that in my body? What would my intention be? And is it time. Mm-hmm. Um, where am I at in my integration work? It's not black and white. Like the MAPS MDMA protocol has three dosing sessions. Our psilocybin studies typically have one or two, for example. Um, and uh, so there's not a one-size-fits-all answer for that, but but it really is an important personal reflection of, of uh Am I doing the integration work? Because in general, I'd say we skimp on the integration work even more than the preparation. Both we Mm. we skimp on because the fireworks of the psychedelic journey are exciting, understandably. And and it takes discipline and a lot of reminders to make the time and space. Like if if your psychedelic journeys are over the course of a week at a retreat, you know, I can tell you in general, you're going to need many, many weeks, if not many, many months or more mm-hmm. to really integrate that. And and I know the work is never done. So we integrate as we go. And, and I know life's a journey. So we, we integrate as we go for that reason, too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because it can be hard to know when to hang up the phone, like what that actually means. Yeah. Um, but life is a process of experience and integration. So the work never stops. We're always on the journey. We never reach the destination necessarily. But uh, do it with self-compassion. Hopefully the stuff we've gone over today has been helpful for you folks. Uh, If not, let us know. We'll try to do better. Bye con Dios. Happy trails. 
Thanks, Reed. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel. Like the videos and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below. Or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.